You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love Pour Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Good morning, good morning, good morning. You have what it takes. You have to take risk, and you have what it takes. We will only understand the miracle of life fully when we allow the unexpected to happen. And that's from Paulo Colo, so I wanted to drop that into your your mind, your thought system as we kick off today's Off the Shelf. And welcome, welcome, welcome to this Saturday, August 22nd. This is the last Saturday in August, you guys. This year has completely blown by for me and I hope that you you're on your way to taking the smart risks so you can live the life and create the life that you really and truly want to live before we introduce you to today's guest and we're starting 30 minutes earlier today so some of you might not come on to 11 but if you do know where is when it finishes streaming you can go back and listen to the show in its entirety but before we introduce our guest today, I wanted to ask you if you think you can finger the person who's responsible for the murder mystery that is covering Raymond and his friends' lives. And 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 if you love mystery and you value relationships and you would be willing to wait however long it took to experience a once-in-a-lifetime romance, I mean the kind of romance and love that could open you up to just the absolute brilliance and insight so few of us experience while we're here in this world. But if you value love, relationships, and you like a good mystery, I encourage you to stop what you're doing and get a copy of Love Pour Over Me today. Love Pour Over Me is available in ebook or print book. Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney. Go treat yourself to a copy of Love Pour Over Me today. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And today's off-the-shelf guest is Terry Brown. Terry was born in Athens, Greece, and at her website she says that she came into this world with a mind full of imagination, and she loves the outdoors, particularly being close to water. In 2020, to raise money for Toys for Tots, that's that, uh, I think the Marines got that started. That's something they do every Christmas to get Christmas toys for, for kids who family don't have the money or something, some experience as they need help. So in 2020, to raise money for Toys for Tots, Terry and her husband rode a tandem bike from Astoria, Oregon to Washington, D.C. What a trek. And she loves to read, help others, which is evident from that bike ride, support others through mentoring, bargaining. She also likes to do bargain shopping and ballroom dancing. And Terry Brown, T-E-R-I, is one R in her name, T-E-R-I, Terry Brown, she's the author of the book Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, which we're going to discuss today, and An Enemy Like Me. You can check Terry, Terry out online, and I encourage you to do that, at T-E-R-I. One R T E R I M B R O W N dot com. Again, that's T E R I M B R O W N dot com. I'm going to bring Terry on live. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Terry. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, we're happy to have you here. And I, I love that title, Sunflowers Beneath the Snow. We're definitely going to talk about your books because that's what our listeners come to hear about, to know more about the authors and the books they write and what inspired them to write, et cetera. But the first few questions I'm going to ask you, probably the first three or four, I ask every guest who comes on the show so our listeners get a little backstory on the authors before we just start jumping right into their books. So to kick off today's show, Terry, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? So I was born in Athens, Greece, because my dad was in the Air Force. And then when I was still young enough that I don't remember, we moved to uh, North Canton, Ohio, and I lived in North Canton until I was 15, and then we moved to the Pinehurst area of North Carolina, 
and I still live in North Carolina to this day. Um, so growing up for me, I mean, I think it was pretty much the what I'd call the standard, you know, like mom and dad. I had a brother. I had a cat. We lived on we lived in a neighborhood, but we had about an acre of property, and I used to pick up sticks and climb trees and sled in the backyard and you know just the normal kid stuff. Um, I when I came to North Carolina, I was really angry. I was 15. I didn't want to move. I couldn't believe they were moving me away from my friends. Um, they had told us that if we didn't like it after a year, that they would take us back to Ohio, and I intended to hate it here. And about three months in, I made some really good friends. I loved it, and I've been here ever since. Wow. Talking about the quote that started today's show, when you open up and let the unexpected happen, how it can really be so life-changing. I was in the Navy, so I was curious for you growing up in the in the Air Force. Did you did you move a lot? You said you were in Ohio. It sounds like you were – you, your family was able to live in one area for a long time because yeah. sometimes we, in the military, we, every, three, every three to four years, you got to pack up and move. That is true, and in our case, we did not. And then my dad got out of the Air Force, and that's when we moved to North Carolina. And so, you know, I was I was very blessed. I had a kind of a different than a lot of people that I know that moved, moved, moved. Um, and so that move for me, when they moved us, I was just oh, – I was heartbroken. I couldn't believe they were doing that to me. Um, and then, like I said, once once I got here, well, then I met friends and I started to fit in. And I've been in North Carolina ever since. And now I really consider North Carolina my home, and I can't imagine moving anywhere else. That is so odd. That is so odd. Oh, it is you, yeah. it's, you know, so many, and it making me think of the things in my life. I say, I don't ever want to do that. I would never do that. And then you wonder, what if I did? What, what would it open up? And this is for our listeners. You think, what would it open up in my life if I did do the thing I'm swearing that I never, ever, ever uh, wanted <laughs> to do? But before well, you, you know, and that's all, the, that's, no, I was no, going to say, that's the, thing about life, that's the thing about life is, is that, you know, you don't know what it's going to open up. You know, you, you can't even begin to imagine, because if you could imagine it, then you might say, well, you know, it would be worth it, but we can't imagine it, so you just have to kind of take that step off into the dark. Yep, yep, yep. So did you, your dad in the Air Force, were you able to fly, whether on vacations, on, on whether on a military, with a, a pass or a military plane? No, no, we pretty, we pretty much stayed put. We didn't do a lot of traveling. Um you know, and that's really crazy is it's, it's not been until me getting into my 50s that I've started doing any real traveling. Um, and I married a man uh, three and a half years ago who is a Marine veteran, and he has been all over the world. And the differences between us are substantial. Like, he's been everywhere, and I feel like I've been nowhere in comparison. And do you, you see the – I was going to ask you, because when I was putting together, researching, putting together questions for today's interview, I'm thinking you've traveled globally. And so I was going to ask you how your travels impact your writing. But before we go into more into your books and what inspired you to start writing, I wanted to ask you with your husband, do you see a difference? Because people say when you travel, it really does change it broadens you. You just you see things differently. Do, do you, have you seen that difference to yourself and your husband? Like he sees, has a broader view of things, or he sees it differently. Yeah, I think he sees it differently, and he has so many more experiences that he can, you know, like look back on. For for me, you know, I see things through just this one lens, and he can see through things through lots of different lenses because he has been you know, in the United States, and he's lived in Germany, and he's lived in Turkey, and he's lived in uh, Afghanistan, and he's been he's been places and seen things that are significantly different than the kinds of things that I've seen. Um, so, yeah, sometimes he has a, a very different worldview than I do, which is really interesting because you can kind of tap into that and, and learn a lot more and get a different experience. I think that talking with people who have seen differences is a great way to kind of open your eyes and learn about, you know, what is life? Because I don't know if you've ever heard that story about, you know, the, the blind men that came and saw an elephant, and each one of them touched a different part of the elephant, 
and came away with a whole different story. You know, one touched the tail and thought that an elephant was like a rope, and one touched, you know, the tusk and thought it was, you know, like stone. And the truth is that they were all right, but they were also all wrong because they didn't have the big global picture. Wow. I never heard of that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Terry, thank you so much for sharing that. Now, when you were a little girl growing up in Ohio and you were dreaming, if you did, of what you wanted to do when you grew up, what did you want to be when you grew up when you were still a kid? So, ironically, I did want to be an author, but I also wanted to be a brain brain surgeon and an an Olympic ice skater. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, it is crazy interesting because I am not a good skater. I don't know whatever gave me the idea that I could do that, except I'd probably watch the Olympics and, you know, fell in love with the, you know, the beautiful. I love, I still to this day love to watch ice skaters. And so, you know, there was something about that. And then the fact that I said I wanted to be a brain surgeon is hysterical because I'm terrified of blood. <laughs> like, like if people if people are bleeding, I'm the person over on the side getting like really pale and you know trying to take deep breaths. You know, so it just shows oh when you're God. a kid, you really don't have any clue. You know, like if you happen to to like I happen to say I wanted to be an author, but I don't even think I knew what that meant any more than I knew what it meant to be a, a brain surgeon. You know, it was just. I don't know, maybe I'd read a good book and thought, ooh, this would be something fun to do. And who knows why I thought a brain surgeon. I mean, who knows? Wow. Now, who or what inspired you to pursue writing? Who birthed your love for books in you? So I have loved books. I don't ever remember not loving books. Um, I remember my mom used to read this one book to me called Over in the Meadow, and it was like a sing-songy little poem. And I... To this day, I still love that book. Then, oh, man, I mean, I read every Nancy Drew. There was a there was a series that was kind of a younger series called Trixie Belden. It was a mystery, too. I read all the Trixie Beldens and then all the Nancy Drews, and then I read all the Hardy Boys because I didn't like the fact that it was a boy book and I wasn't supposed to read it, so I read that anyway. And then I read, I mean, I read anything I could get my hands on. Um, I I never remember a time in my life where reading wasn't the thing that I loved to do. My mom used to say to me, Terry, get out of the house. Go play. Stop reading your books. So I would take my book and open up my window and put it out on the window ledge and go outside and get my book and climb a tree and read my book in the tree because then I was outside and mom quit bothering me. Wow. Yeah, you did love to read. You did. Now, can you give us an overview, our, our listeners, of Sunflowers Beneath the Snow? Yeah, so Sunflowers Beneath the Snow is about three generations of Ukrainian women. It starts in 1973, and it follows through to shortly after the Russian invasion in 2014 when they invaded the Crimean Peninsula. And the crazy thing is, is this book came out three weeks before the current invasion started. So I tell everyone it's like historical fiction and ripped from the headlines at the same time. Um, Yeah, and we follow these three women, and we watch how they they evolve and they grow despite being in really horrific circumstances because living in Ukraine at that time was very difficult. And so we watch these three women, and we watch them grow, and and it's kind of like a, a family saga, historical fiction all wrapped up into one. Where did you get so... Again, as I'm researching this, I'm thinking, okay, she's lived in the Ukraine when she was with her dad in the Air Force. Did have you ever lived? Well, no, you said you, you didn't. So, no. where did you? Where did the ideal, the inspiration for this story come from? Yeah, so a lot of people have said to me, you know, you you you're not Ukrainian, and you've never lived in Ukraine, and you're supposed to write about things that you know. What in the world made you write about Ukraine? And the first thing I tell people is, is I'm writing about people that live in Ukraine, and I like people, and I know people, so I can write about Ukraine. But the story itself actually has a little tiny bit of truth to it. My daughters, I have two daughters, I actually have three daughters, but two of them were camp counselors. Um, and every summer they would go up and be camp counselors, and international students would also come and be camp counselors. And one of those international students was a girl from Ukraine. 
Her name is Xenia. And Xenia came in 2013, and then she was able to come back again in 2014. But when it was time for her to go home, Russia had invaded Ukraine, and her parents lived in the Crimea Peninsula, right where the war was, and she was unable to go home. Um, the really amazing thing about this story is, is that she had not um, seen her family now for eight years. She's never gone home. And yesterday, I got a video of her greeting her mother and her sister and her nephew that she's never met at the airport. They've come to stay with her for the remainder of the war. And I cried, and I cried. But anyway, so she came to our home in 2016 and told me this incredible story about something that happened to her while in New York City. And this it was so incredible that I had trouble believing it was true. And I thought, well, maybe we're having a communication barrier because, you know, she has a Ukrainian accent and, and English is her second language. So I asked lots of questions, and what she told me was true. And it was so compelling that I wrote 82,000 words of fiction so I could tell that three pages of truth. Wow. So let me ask you, what, what time period – is this story so that you, you, the camp, the camp, uh, the people helping with the camps? This was around 2014. When what right. is the time period that sunflowers beneath the snow take? Because there are three generations of women. What time right. period does the book touch on? So, yeah, so it starts in 1973, and that's during the period of time where Ukraine is still um, part of the Soviet Union. And then it goes all the way through where we see um, Soviet independence, the early part, and then later part, and then all the way through to the invasion, and then just a little beyond in the epilogue. Oh, okay, okay. Can you introduce our readers? You know, when it comes to books, it's the plot is very interesting. And then this is one thing I love about Off the Shelf or any, where, any show where the author is interviewed. You learn more about the makings of the story, which may, always makes a story more appealing to me, not just the description, but how the story actually came about. We're hearing you talk about the, the girl with the, from the camp who came and stayed with you. That makes the story even more compelling to me. So can you, but the next thing, of course, are the characters. The readers have to really care about characters and what's going to happen to them to stick with the story. So could you introduce us to Ivana? What is, what is Ivana like? So Ivana is the grandmother. She's the oldest. She is, her husband left her, or uh, he died, but he died, she believes that he died because he was having an affair and was caught. And she's left to believe that, and she has a daughter, and she goes on now to have to figure out how to be a single woman living in Soviet Union with a daughter and survive. And, you know, you see the hardships of all of that, she becomes an extreme party loyalist. So she is completely for the Soviet Union. And I've had a lot of people tell me that at first they had a lot of trouble liking her, that, that she seemed so unbendable. But I, I wanted her to be unbendable because by the end of her part of the story, I think that we can see why she was the way she was and you can see that she she learns and she grows, and you come to at least admire her for her strength, even if you don't much care for you know her politics or or you know her stubbornness. You can at least admire her. And then I, she also has an amazing relationship with her granddaughter, and I think that also is a good redeeming factor for her. But she's a hard worker, and she, you know she does everything she knows how to do in order to make life better for her daughter Yvette. So Yvetsi is my second character, yeah. And uh, Yvetsi, um, she's smart, and she gets an opportunity to go on to college because of how brilliant she is, and she works at a university in a biology department, and she um, eventually finds someone to marry, and she and her mother think completely differently about what Ukraine should be like. Um, you know, her mother wants to... You wants Ukraine to stay as part of the Soviet Union, 
And Betsy very, very much wants Ukraine to be independent. So there's that kind of angst between mother and daughter. And then we have uh, Iona, who is the youngest, and she's Yvetsi's daughter. And she looks at it in a completely different manner, which I think is very typical of kids who've not been through the same events that their parents and grandparents have been through. And her attitude is more like, what are we still talking about this for? You know, it's not a big deal. We're free now. What What do you care? Why are we still talking about it? And so she kind of has that attitude, but she ends up coming to the United States because she's, you know, she has the opportunity to explore. And so we get to see these three women and how their differences sometimes separate them, but how family kind of pulls them all together. So Ivana, Ivana and for some reason, maybe uh, a longer description of her, she kind of piqued my interest at the start of Sunflowers Beneath the Snow. Because are you, are you switching between time periods in the book? And how, how old is Ivana at the start of Sunflowers Beneath the Snow? Has she just given birth to uh, Yetsi? Has she just given birth to her daughter? Or is she already a, a grandmother at this point? No. So at the start of the book, we see uh, Ivana is a mother, and I think Yvetsi is, I don't give her an age, but four or five, six, somewhere, in, oh, you know, okay. a, a child, a child, not not a baby, but definitely not yet a teenager. And, you know, so the, the opening of the book is, is that we find out that her husband um, is cheating, and he gets killed, and her world is rocked. So from that point on, you know, she's living with this knowledge that that the person that, you know, that she loved has done this to her, and it changes who she is, just like it would change any of us. And so you kind of see, you kind of see that rock hardness about her. Um, and then as she becomes a grandmother, she allows herself to, to soften a little you know, with her granddaughter, which I think is true of all of us. I know that me as a grandmother, my kids tell me all the time, you didn't do that to us when, when you were the mom, <laughs> you know. And But I think that's just true of the way it is because we've gotten older. Um, we don't have quite the same angst. We're also not the ones in charge. You know, like it's so fun to be a grandmother because you get to, you know, the kids come and, and they eat Pop-Tarts for breakfast and you don't worry that the nutrition wasn't good because the truth is is that they're going home tomorrow and mom's going to take care of that from now on. And so it's kind of a nice thing. And so, you know, you see that with her that she's able to relax a little bit and become the kind of grandmother, I think maybe even like she wished she'd maybe been able to be more that way as a mother. She sounds like a, 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 a very uh, interesting character. So at least in describing your characters and how you develop them, is are any of the characters in the book based on, in part, either yourself or someone you know? You don't have to say who it is, but did you lean on any people you know personally to help put these characters, to develop them? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So Yvetsi, she experienced experiences a lot of things that I have experienced. There's a section in there where she has postpartum depression. I experienced that, not to the degree that I have her experience it in the book, but but still I have that experience. And she deals with the whole empty nest syndrome, and, of course, I went through that. And so I think that, yeah, Betsy, there's a lot of me in her, but there's a lot of me in all three characters. And then there's a lot of other people, like, some of my mom is in the mother and some of the mother-daughter relationship is there, you know, the little, you know, the, the strong love but the angst that happens uh, between mothers and daughters a lot of times. And um, and then uh, Iona, I think she's almost the person that I wish that I had been able to be at that age. Wow. Like, you know, like she's strong and independent and, and fearless and I, I wish that I had been more like her. So I, it's almost like she's that persona that, you know, if I could go back and relive life, I'd probably try to be more like her. 
Interesting. You know, as a writer, sometimes I think writing is very therapeutic for people listening to the show. Whether you and I, we know we have people who listen who who are writers, and some who want to be, and some who just love to read books. Uh, but writing, whether whether you wanted to publish a book or not, to our listeners. I think writing is very therapeutic, whether you do journal writing or because sometimes you look back on a story and you're like, wow, that's a little bit of me in there. Or that's, I wish, like you said, I wish I was a little more that way. And it, it, you could, as authors, I wonder, or artists, period, painters, singers, how much of our own stuff we're working through even as we create art. But so here's my next question for you. you got these three generation of women and they are I'm sure there's similarities. They've 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 helped with their own internal programming, and they're different, and their generations are different. And we often are like the people around us, so they they they're also different from the generational aspect. And I love that you did that. Was it your intent, in part? I know you're telling a story to show how each woman influences the other, which in turn influences an entire family was was that your intent you know i have so much trouble with with that because i was writing a story and as i wrote it it's like it's like my characters told me what it was that we intended to do with it i was kind of surprised when i was done writing some of the themes that came out of it not surprised that i could do it but surprised that those are the ones that that became so prominent. So I think when I started writing, it was because I had this story that needed telling. And then as I wrote it, certain themes just felt right. And so they they kept expressing themselves in the book. And then when when you're done and you look and you think, wow, look at look at what I've created here. This is, you know, this is talking about like generational living and and how an older generation influences a younger and how even the younger can influence the, the elder generation. And, and yeah, so I think that it wasn't necessarily purposeful, but as it started coming out, I recognized it and was able to play upon that and, and you know, explore that even more. I, I liken it back to, you know, you go to these English classes and the English teacher will say things like, why did the author make the curtains blue? Well, sometimes the author made the curtains blue because they looked up in their own office and their curtains were blue, and so they used blue curtains. Sometimes maybe the blue curtains were symbolic, but sometimes they were just blue. That's just true. And then when you're done writing and you look, you recognize, oh, my, isn't that amazing that I chose blue curtains because this whole section was about, you know, feeling sad and depressed and and the blue curtains are perfect. Do you see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. So I don't know that it's yeah. always as purposeful as we would, as, you know, I think some authors would love to, to say, oh, yes, I purposely did all of that. And I think really the truth is, is a lot of what we do happens almost subconsciously. And then as you see it happening, then you consciously kind of build upon that. Mm. And, and and thanks for sharing that. I wanted to ask you when you, going back to Ivana again, uh, I, I wanted to ask this. You know, in today's generation, it, she's, this story's opening in the 70s. And then even then, too, it's not so uncommon for a man to have an affair. But in the environment she grew up in, it sounds like, so I wanted to ask you, did she and her daughter's father, did they have, like, this fairy tale relationship? Or was she, like, in a state of disillusion or illusion where she just thought it was fairy tale-ish? But she was like blinded to what was really going on, and and was it very uncommon for men to have affairs then? Because for her to think he got killed because he had an affair, it sounded like no other guy was doing that. Was that common, or was she just in this fairy tale, everything fabulous world of her own when she okay, was younger? So, so let let's tell just a little bit more of the story. He was actually not having an affair. She was told he was. He was actually a spy. He was actually a spy. And he was compromised, and he was given a choice. You can die here, or you can, or we can get you out of the country, but we can't take your family. And so, his, so she was told that he was having an affair, 
was mm. caught by the jealous husband, and the jealous husband killed him. Wow. And she spends story, the rest of her life. Just, oh, my gosh. So she spends the rest of her life believing that he wow. has cheated on her, and it affects how she she believes and lives the rest of her life, when the truth was is, yes, he was doing something behind her back, but it was because he was uh, a Ukrainian loyalist and, and wanted to see Ukraine. And so he was doing some, some not even like big spy stuff, just little things, but he was compromised and he was given a choice and he chose to leave. Um, they told him that if he left that they would be able to keep his family safe. And so he left and she was told that he was uh, killed in an affair and she believed it. Wow. Sunflowers beneath the snow. Terry Brown ain't playing around, y'all. Sunflowers <laughs> beneath the snow. Oh, wow. Can you introduce our listeners to some of the other minor characters who help move the story forward? I definitely want to know what, I, they're not telling the story, but I definitely want to know what Ivana's husband was like. Was he gentle? Was he kind? But if you could introduce us to some yeah. of the other minor characters in the story. Okay, so I. Uh, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Ivana's husband's name is Lyxandro, and that is essentially like Alexander, except in Ukrainian. So it's Lyxandro, and yeah, he was a good guy. He was smart. He worked at um, a university. Um, he just had this kind of Ukrainian nationalist ideas in his head. And his father was the same way. And so when he was given this opportunity to do a little bit of, of spy work, more or less just find information and pass it on. He didn't even know who he was passing it on to or, or what it was being used for. He was just a little tiny cog. But he was a good guy, and, and he loved his wife, and he loved his child. And he did worry that what he was doing could potentially harm them, but he kept telling himself maybe this would be the last time that he would do it, and then he was caught. So he's one of the characters. Um, and then we have uh, Yvetsi's husband. His name is Danya. And Danya is, um, he's a great guy. And he he's one of these people that is always saying to her, like, prove it. Like, she has an idea, and he's, he's prove it. You know, is it just an idea? Is it just an assumption that you have? Or, or do you have real proof of it? And so he's always making her kind of, look at what she believes from many different sides to determine, you know, who she is. And he helps her see that she wants Ukraine to be free. And that's when the whole thing starts with she and her mother. Because up until this point, she's just done whatever her mother said. And then she meets Danya and they get married and, you know, everything kind of changes. Um, and then I guess another character that's kind of big in the story, her name is Katrina. And she is a, um, well, she works with, I guess she, I don't even know what you would call her. She's not a doctor. She's more like a midwife. Um, and she deals a lot with herbs and things. Because at this point, we're dealing in a time where it was still in the Soviet Union. And it's not like there was a lot of medicine. You know, you, you kind of had to deal with whatever you were given. And so she learned how to do things with, you know, plants that grew in the area. And she's one of the ones... Uh, that helped Yvetsi when she had postpartum depression. So we meet her. Um, and then I guess the other major character, and this is terrible that I can't remember her name. I'm sitting here trying so hard. Um, I'm not going to be able to remember it, but it was the um, head of the, the camp um, who kind of took Iona in for a while when Iona couldn't go back home after the war. I mean, after the summer when the war had started, and so she wasn't able to go back home. So you see a little bit of her, too. But the, the three main characters, of course, are the women and then just the people that they come in contact with. Does this, I love this title, Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, does the title hold any special meaning? Yeah, so the title was the hardest thing to write. I that we went through 100 titles before we finally landed on one that, that I liked, um, which is crazy because, you you know, I would have rather written the manuscript again than, than come up with that title. But it turned out to be the perfect title. 
And the reason that we eventually chose it was, you know, if you think about sunflowers, you know, they're they're a summer flower and they're beautiful and they're they're you know they're tall and they're straining towards the sun. But even in the depths of winter, they're sitting there as seeds, you know, down below that snow, waiting. They're just waiting for their time. Well, that's the way Ukraine is, and that's the way these three women were, you know, waiting for their time to bloom. And so sunflowers beneath the snow kind of encapsulated both uh, the women and the country itself. Mm, It's a beautiful title. What have readers been saying about the book Sunflowers Beneath the Snow? I've gotten some great comments that just make me happy. One is that they love my characters, which really pleases me because I like writing character-driven fiction. You know, it's, it's about the character. If the character's good, you'll go with them wherever, wherever they go, whatever the storyline is. Um, so that has really pleased me. And then the other thing that I really love is that, you know, this book came out just as the war started again with Ukraine and Russia. And living here in the United States, we don't really know much about the history and we don't know much about really what's going on over there. We see a little on the news and and even nowadays, I mean, the war is still going on and we hardly hear about it anymore. And people walk away from having read my book, understanding a little bit more about the conflict that's going on today and why it's going on. And then they tell me, I walked away with a friend who lives in Ukraine, and now I feel more empathy and compassion for the people who live there. And that just pleases me to no end. Yeah. What you've shared so far has helped open my eyes. Even what you've shared so far, I do wonder why I like the timing they try to go back and take it back. But it it, it does... um, it's eye-opening what, what you've just shared about why this conflict, but the timing of it is something maybe we'll never know. But um, just a Exactly. So I want to pivot a little bit, Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, and I encourage our listeners to not only get a copy of Sunflower Beneath, Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, but you can keep up with Terry Brown, and you can go to her website, T-E-R-I-M-B-R-O-W-N.com, Again, that's T-E-R-I-M-B-R-O-W-N.com. And you can keep up with what she is doing with Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, the next book we're going to talk about, and, and any other new works that she has coming up. So just to pivot a little, can we want to start exploring An Enemy Like Me. Can you tell us about your this latest, latest novel, An Enemy Like Me? Just give us a brief synopsis of this novel. Okay, so An Enemy Like Me is coming out in January, so I'm super excited about that. Um, I'm going to be doing a cover reveal soon, so I've I've got the cover. I know what it looks like now. Um, I actually have it in my hands, and it is just amazing. It just, oh, just, like, I cried when I pulled it out of the box, but (laughs) I'm a crier, so that's okay. Um, So this book is, it's a World War II genre, so it's another historical fiction. And it explores the idea that we're more like the enemy than we are different from them. And I do this by having a first-generation German-American fight in World War II as an American, but he's sent to Germany. When he signs up for the war, he believes he's going to fight the Japanese. And he has made the Japanese, in his mind, into an enemy that he can fight because they're different than he is. They look different than him. They sound different than him, and he can fight that enemy. And then he finds himself in Germany instead, and he recognizes, wait a minute, these people are, you know, I'm more like them than I am different from them. And so we explore that whole concept of the fact that that's true of anyone, really, that we call an enemy, because just because they look different or they sound different doesn't really mean that they are different. And that we often have way more in common with someone than, than not. And that if we knew that, if we met that person in a different situation, they wouldn't be an enemy. They might actually be someone we would invite over to dinner. So we explore that concept from his point of view as a soldier, but we also explore it from his wife's point of view who's left behind, as well as his four-year-old son. And we explore it as 
when his son is four and also as an adult man looking back. Wow. Man, you, you stop listening to you. You're, even the, 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 the layers to your stories. Oh, my God, like Ivana's husband. That was like the way you put that together. And then, oh, my goodness, just the layers beneath your stories. Uh, so I wasn't going to ask you this, but now I'm going to ask you. So how long have you been writing, like, novels? You said you've been reading. You read so much as a kid, Nancy Drew, et cetera. How long have you been writing? So I started writing for small businesses, doing articles and things in 2000. But I did not try my hand at fiction writing. I wrote my first manuscript in 2017. Oh, wow. Yeah, you sound like and you've been writing for a long, long time. The no, way you develop your no, stories. no. I think that it's because I'm I'm such an avid reader. You know, I know what I like in a story, and um, and then I tell people all the time that I have voices in my head. I don't need to be medicated, but I do have voices, and and they're my characters, and they tell me stories, and I almost just have to sit and listen and just write what they're telling me. Sometimes I'll have an idea and I'll think, ooh, this is where I'm going to make this character go, and the character absolutely refuses. You know, it's like, nope, that's not what I'm doing. And it's like, no, no, I need you to do that so I can move the story forward. And they're like, nope, nope, not happening. I'm not going there. So, you know, I just feel like I've got that kind of, you know, there's a a creative gene or something in there that just insists on being heard. And so I listen to my characters and I write stories. And I, I love doing it. I I don't know what took me so long to get started. And in a way, I wish I had started earlier, but I'm just really, really grateful that I've started now. There you go. There you go. Can you – and your characters, you said your stories are character-driven. This the, – the plot, the, the, and the, the messaging, the theme in your novels is so engaging. Can you introduce us to – some of the major and minor characters and an enemy like me, what is driving them or any of them? Like you said, Ivana, she just stands out to me for some reason. You said she was like unbendable <laughs> and hard and what made her that way. What are, what are the, some of the characters, major and minor, what are their personalities, their motivations like in an enemy like me? So um, Jacob is the, the soldier, Um but before he's a soldier, he's a son, and he's a he's a, a husband, and he's a father, and he has to make this decision as to whether or not he's going to go fight in the war. And so, you know, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, everybody runs immediately and, and signs up for the war. I mean, this that was you know, if you know anything about the history of World War II, the number of people that volunteered, you know, within the the few weeks following the bombing of Pearl Harbor was phenomenal. But he was not one of them because he was a father, and his wife convinced him that he could do more at home. And he believed her for a long while, but eventually realized that there was a growing hatred of German-Americans in Germany. And he felt that he needed to protect his family by proving that he was a patriot and not a German sympathizer. So he joins the war anyway, and his wife is horribly upset, of course. Her name is Bonnie, and Bonnie grew up – so Jacob grew up as a very poor, poor kid. Uh, His his father died when he was young, and his mother had to figure out how to raise him. Bonnie, on the other hand, grew up very, very wealthy, but her family lost all their money during the Depression. And so the two of them end up meeting, and it's really crazy because they're so different, yet they complement each other really well. Well, when she finds out that he's going to the war anyway, I mean, she just about loses her mind. She can't believe that he's going to leave her and the, the child behind. So then we watch these struggles, and we watch how, you know, war changes people, but it doesn't just change those people who are in the war. It changes those people who are left behind, too. You know, all the struggles that they go through and, and their fears and, and, and whatnot. And then um, we watch the youngest, who is their son. And their son's name is Robert. And Robert, he, you know, he was a happy-go-lucky kid, but he saw a lot of things that were never explained to him because he was considered, you know, a, a child. And, and you didn't explain war to a child. 
So he was left with his own interpretations. And we, we see him as an adult who's having trouble with having a relationship with his father and with his own son. And a lot of that comes back to how his father was when he came home from the war. And so we see all of that and how they kind of come to terms with themselves and with what happened. And like I said, we also then explore that whole idea. You know, governments start war, but everyday people fight fight the war. And these are people who have families on both sides. So, you know, look at the war today going on with Ukraine and Russia. Yes, it's a horrible war, but the Russian people aren't the ones that started it. And a majority of those Russian soldiers are just young kids with moms and dads and potentially spouses and children who would rather be doing anything else. But their country is at war, so they're fighting. And so we explore all of that, that idea that war really changes people. And how does it change them? And how does that even go down? You know, the father fought, but it changed his son. And because it changed his son, it's going to have changed his grandchildren because his son was a different kind of father than he might have been otherwise. And how that that just goes down, right? Yeah. We saw that with Vietnam. There was no way to miss it. Exactly. I mean, that was right in your face, like, yeah, people really had to see it. Before it was very patriotic, heroic, uh, uh, you got to fight for your country. And then, like you said, it's like you didn't even start the war. Somebody else decided we're going to war for whatever reason. And sometimes we never even, like Vietnam, people never like, even knew. Never even know why you really went. Or you're told right. a reason that may not be an honest reason, and you're told you have to do it, and they make the enemy look so horrific. And you may never know really why you ever even went there. So now now right. that, Terry, now that you've written two novels, one coming out in January, An Enemy Like Me, you guys look for An Enemy Like Me in January 2023, and just the way you describe your stories. This is where we're author doing interviews on a radio, podcast, TV, really makes a, has an impact because you can do – you can. You can write a great description, a great title, use SEO and everything at Amazon and beyond. But it's when you hear the author talk about the makings of the story, the inspiration, the, they go into the character development that you don't have time to do in a, a book description. Is, exactly. is really very impactful. Now that, now that you've written two novels, do you plan, you said you were a voracious reader, you got started 2017, do you plan to publish a novel every six months or so? Some people write them that fast. I, I certainly don't, but some people write them faster than that. But you've written two novels really close together. So do you have a plan to come out with a new book every year or every every other year? I hope to come out with one yearly. Um, right now, my husband in June was diagnosed with um, glioblastoma, which is an aggressive form of brain cancer. So my life has been turned upside down a little, um, but yeah, I still hope that I can find the time to write. It might have to slow up just a little bit because, you know, caring for my my husband is, of course, you know, top priority for me. Um, But yeah, I've got another book idea in my head that uh, my characters are talking to me. I know her name is Margaret. Um, I'm, I'm... I've kind of got like a basic idea of where the story's going. Uh, no title, uh, but it's like the, the late 1800s. It's North Carolina mountains. It's kind of the Appalachian folklore, and it's going to deal with uh, a woman who is a healer who knows the healing arts and how she bumps up against modern medicine and, you know, that grind that happens between old ways and new ways. And so I don't know exactly where it's going yet, but it'll probably be generational because there's a granddaughter who keeps talking to me too. So I like I like generational stories. I that's something I, I really enjoy writing. So you are coming up with these amazing stories and bless you and your family and your husband. Bless you, bless you. You come up with these amazing stories. I mean, oh my gosh. 
What have you learned, Terry, since you wrote and published your first novel, Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, again, An Enemy Like Me, is that coming out in January? But since you've published and wrote Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, what what have you learned that you wish you had known before you had written and published the book? I wish someone had talked to me about how to market a book. I knew nothing. I published that book and sat back and waited for it to sell. And that's crazy because there are thousands and thousands of books out there, and the idea that someone is going to accidentally come upon Sunflowers Beneath the Snow on Amazon is crazy thinking. But I didn't know anything at all about how to market my book or how to, to, to get a following. I didn't, you know, nobody knew who I Still, people don't know who I am. I'm a brand-new author. This is my debut novel. So, yeah, I wish someone had talked to me more about what you need to do, not only write, but how you start getting a following, how you get your book out into the world. And one of the ways that I have found is doing these radio shows and podcasts and things along this line because, like you said, now I get to talk about my book and I get to explain, you know, why – um, this book excites me, and because it does excite me, I think that shows. And then my enthusiasm helps other people say, well, you know, maybe that is a good book, and I'll go read it, whereas they might have never heard about it any other way. Mm. How do you see novel writing and book publishing? You've been reading books for, for years. We, When I was a kid, there were no e-books, so, and, and then audio books no. weren't big, <laughs> but how do you see it changing? I actually saw something on a video yesterday where you, there's a, is it, it's read it or something. You can actually put something in like a topic and artificial intelligence can write a whole paper for you in seconds. Or, 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 the whole, or it can write a paragraph in seconds. A whole paper might take it three minutes. I was blown away. How do, how do you see novel writing and the book publishing industry is changing even as we're speaking, changing even more over the next several years? Yeah, you know, I think publishing, we're seeing huge changes because self-publishing is now a thing and hybrid publishing is now a thing where it's, you know, kind of like a, a cross between self-publishing and then having a little bit of experienced help behind you. That has opened the doors to a lot more people because in the traditional publishing, it's very slow and um, it takes a long time to get your book out and it take, it's a huge, long process and it's very expensive, whereas self-publishing kind of like lowered the, the barriers for entry so that people had more access to, to, you know, get their work out there. So we've seen that and I suspect we're going to continue seeing all kinds of changes as technology changes. Now, in terms of like the AI writing articles, I think that's really interesting. I would, I want to read the articles that the AI comes up with because I've, I've read some things before that were obviously written. I don't know if it was by a bot or if it was like an article that had been put into a, a program and then popped back out as a different article. And it always sounds awkward to me. So yeah, I would be curious to see how the AI bot you know, did the articles. And that may very well change how things are done. Um, I hope not too fast because I really like writing and I don't want it to, to turn into something that a robot does for me. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you on that. And then again, I said, like, writing is very therapeutic. You, it, it, A person would lose that. And maybe it does become big, but uh, there will be people who will still stick to, I know I plan to, it is the traditional way. There are people who still write their novels in longhand, but they're, they're, you, they'll still stick to the traditional, you know. Uh, uh, and then Google, I think, is cracking down on the SEO articles that are written by bots. They say they want stuff that's it's a human wrote it for another human and not just to right. get search engine at the top of some search engine so you can get more uh, notice for your product or your business. So I think that's a good move. Now, you are uh, – we we only have a few minutes left, but I definitely have to ask you this question because your stories, the ideals that for your stories, the plots, the themes are just so incredibly engaging and very layered. What writing process do you follow, particularly for our listeners who are listening to you describe your stories going, wow, I wish I could do that. Do you do outlines? Do you do character sketches? How do you develop your stories? 
So I almost hate saying it out loud because I, I feel like it makes me sound like I, I don't do it right because I think that, you know, I hear these these really famous authors and they talk about all their outlines and character development and how they write every day for 30 minutes or, or an hour or three hours or whatever they do, and, and I don't. I'm a complete panster, which means that I don't do any outline. I just start writing. And I also do what I call binge writing, which means that I might not write anything and then I'll sit down for three days and you will hardly see me because I'll be writing for 12 hours a day and then I'll be done for a while and then I'll do that again. So I'm a binge writing pantser. So I don't know, I think my characters get the deep development when I do my editing. So I I tend to kind of word vomit, you know, just get it out of my head and get that story down on paper. And then I go back through and I say, okay, I, I need to make this character stronger and how do I do that? And, and that's how I do it. So instead of starting with an outline, I actually start with uh, my first draft. And then I go back and I find a way to, to strengthen the character or strengthen um, the theme that I've recognized as coming out in this manuscript or um, along that along that way. Um, I love the first draft process. The editing process is not my favorite because um, it's slower and I like to kind of get things. I'm, I love to be done with something and make a check mark, you know, like, ooh, got that done. And so getting that first draft out for me is, is very quick because I'm not super concerned with things like character development and plot holes or anything like that. I go ahead and worry about that when I do the editing. You kind of write like I do. I do the same thing. <laughs> and I did. I have done an outline with one story. I think that was Spiral. And because I've always heard, like you, when I used to early in my career go to these writing conferences, they recommended it in character sketches. Yep. But it felt too confining to me. So I think whatever approach works best for you uh, is good. But you've come up with some very good plots and, and themes and whatnot to your story novels what advice terry i always like to leave advice for our listeners or something that they walk away with tips and you've laughed you certainly laughed those but what advice would you have for someone who's looking to write publish and market a book today for the very first time um so for publishing so they've already written the book yeah so what, that what, what, what advice and publishing and marketing and it's their very first time doing it Okay, so if, there, if we're talking about publishing and marketing for the first time, you know, you've got to have a website and you need to have it up and running long before your book comes out. And you need to start doing your marketing three, at least three full months before the date your book is released. Six months is even better. And, you know, one of the best ways that I have found is to talk with people who review books, give them a free digital copy of your book in uh, exchange for an honest review, get those out there so people start hearing about your book and getting the buzz about your book, and then start getting on some you know, uh, podcasts and radio shows and things and, and start talking about your book. If you don't show that you love your book, no one else is going to. You know, you're, you're the best advocate for your book, so get out there and do it. That's what I would say. Okay, thank you. Working off the shelf get listeners get a copy of Sunflowers Beneath the Snow and in January, uh, an enemy like me. Well you can go to my website, which you've said is Terry M. Brown. That's Terry with one R. You can also get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, pretty much anywhere where you can find books sold online. You can find um both An Enemy Like Me and Sunflowers Beneath the Snow. Of course an enemy like me will be coming out in January. And uh, are you on any social media networks? If so, where I, can uh, listeners find you? Yes, yeah, so go to my website and you'll see links to all the social media. I am on all of it. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn and uh, Pinterest. I'm even on TikTok, though I have no idea what I'm doing there. <laughs> oh, well, we want to thank Terry Brown. Thank you, Terry. Oh, I loved, love, love connecting with you. Uh, Terry Brown, and again, her website, you guys, T-E-R-I-M-B-R-O-W-N.com, T-E-R, 
one R T E R I M B R O W N dot com. Terry Brown, she's the author of Sunflowers Beneath the Snow. Her new book, An Enemy Like Me, is coming out in January 2023. Please go over, visit her, bookmark her site. You can keep up with her. She's got her social media stuff there as well. She writes some awesome stories. You guys, you want to check out her books. I think you will really, really find them to be very engaging and entertaining. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Terry. We so appreciate having you on Off the Shelf this morning. And to our listeners, as I always tell you, you are amazing. You are incredible. You're awesome. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself today. See you back here next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Terry, I'll send you a link to the show when it finishes streaming. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Thank you for having me.